so we're going to be looking for one of the rarest animals in this region. The red cockaded woodpecker, which is an, I think enigmatic might be the right word. That's Andy Wood, director of Coastal Plain Conservation Group, and I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn, and you are in the wild coastal plain. As southeastern North Carolina's population swells, natural areas that make this a biodiversity hotspot are disappearing. In each episode of In the Wild Coastal Plain, we'll meet a species endemic to this hotspot, a plant or an animal, sometimes both, as in this episode, Also, we can better understand where we live and who lives here with us. We're heading into Holly Shelter Gameland, which is a state-owned and managed public trust resource located in Pender County. And it is roughly, it encompasses roughly 70,000 acres, plus or minus. Uh, there's a couple of different game lands that are merged, so it might be closer to 80,000 acres. One of the last best pieces of this ecoregion's natural heritage, in terms of its size especially. This is a big chunk of land. We're looking for the red cockaded woodpecker in Holly Shelter because of the longleaf pine savannas. These two species, the bird and the tree, have their fates intertwined. Two members of a biodiversity hotspot in North Carolina's coastal plain ecosystem. And let's make this clear right up front. Yes, they're called red cockaded woodpeckers, but... Red cockaded woodpeckers don't reveal red. The male has a little match head sized patch of red on each side of its head, but Otherwise, you're not going to see red on a red cockaded woodpecker. That name has its connections back to the Revolutionary War when military officers wore a colored feather in their hat to denote their rank. Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony, stuck a colored feather in his hat and called himself a general. <laughs> I thought he called the feather macaroni, but Andy's the guide. Or something like that. So um, the red cockaded woodpecker has a little red patch that is covered by black feathers. And when the bird's upset, it will lift those black feathers, revealing that red patch, which is called a cockade. And the feather in Yankee Doodle's hat is called a cockade. During battle, they would cover that or remove that colored feather so the enemy didn't know that they were an officer. Wow. I get calls with some frequency. I think there's a red cockaded woodpecker in my yard. And my first question is, do you see red? Yes, its whole head is red. Ah, that might be a red-headed woodpecker. Might be a pileated, might be a hairy, a downy, red-bellied any number of even yellow-bellied sapsucker. It could be any number of woodpeckers, but if you see red on the woodpecker's head, it is unlikely to be a red cockaded woodpecker. Got it. So remind me again why holly shelter is so important to this not red-headed, red cockaded rare bird. The reason holly shelter is so important to that 
endangered species, and it is a federally endangered species, is because, as you can see, we're entering a, um, a longleaf pine savanna habitat. Longleaf pines are the favorite tree of red cockaded woodpeckers. They're also the state tree of North Carolina. Here's to the land of the longleaf pine, the summer. Here's to the land of the longleaf pine, summer land where the sun doth shine, all that. Andy's quite musical today. Maybe it's the bird song? Underneath these longleaf pine are clumps of wire grass mixed in with creeping blueberry, lionia, lakothwi. You can see some roadside white flowers. That's a weedy uh, dewberry, the uh, blackberry. You don't usually find blackberry out in a savanna. That's just roadside, rural garden stuff. So in the savanna itself that we're traveling through, we could probably count upwards of 60 to 80 different species of plants. But in some parts of Holly Shelter, you can throw a hula hoop on the ground and count upwards of dozens of different species of plants within that hula hoop's perimeter. That's how biodiverse Holly Shelter is. And as I mentioned, it's owned and managed by the Wildlife Resources Commission. And so state employees with the Wildlife Commission manage this property and much of their work centers around managing the property for, specifically for, red-cockaded woodpeckers. They manage it for other reasons as well, wildfire protection, reduction, there's a native azalea. This is how it is with Andy in the wild coastal plain. While he explains one element, he's always scanning the landscape, and even the smallest species will catch his eye. Yes, native azaleas are quite different from the ones you see throughout Wilmington's residential areas, the ones you see celebrated during the annual azalea festival, but that's for another episode. So why are red cockaded woodpeckers endangered? What's happening to them? Why are they endangered? Because at one time we had 93 million acres of longleaf pine habitat from North Carolina, Virginia line, all the way to East Texas, up into Southern Illinois. That number is now reduced to about 3 million acres. So everything associated with longleaf pine is as imperiled as the longleaf pine habitat. You might have heard the traffic sounds behind us. Andy wants to travel further inside Holly Shelter, further away from the man-made sounds, so that we can hear the wind soughing through the trees. And the birds, he says, the birds also need more quiet to communicate. Birds communicate by sound. A lot of their communication is, is visual as well, feathers and displays. But sound, their calls, are really, really important. And so when you hear all of that traffic noise, it should be very, very quiet out here. All we should hear is wind soughing through the trees, and yet we're hearing all of that noise. So all the birds that live in this area have to raise their voices to be heard over our din. Even noise pollution is an issue. So we drive in his pickup truck along a gravel road. see 
the white bands on those trees. Mm -hmm. And if you look about eight feet above that band, that pair of white bands, you see a hole in the tree. Mm -hmm. That was created by a male red-cockaded woodpecker. That's a cavity tree. And you see other trees in this area with that pair of white bands. Those white bands denote cavity trees that belong to a red-cockaded woodpecker. How do you know it's a it's a male that made the hole? The male does most of the excavating to create cavities for himself, his spouse, and their hoped-for offspring. How they paint those white bands on the trees, we don't yet know. Um, <laughs> I, I kid. You got me. I kid. <laughs> it was just for a second, maybe two. The white bands are there, so the Wildlife Resources Commission staff know these are the significant trees in this patch of habitat, the ones hosting red cockaded woodpeckers. And when they do conduct a prescribed burn in here, they'll first go in and cut down, they'll mow down the grasses and any shrubs that might be, it's mostly grasses, uh, wiregrass around the base of the tree to reduce the risk of fire actually touching the tree. If you've spent any time in southeastern North Carolina, you've probably heard about prescribed burns. But do you understand why these burns, controlled and planned forest fires conducted by humans, what they actually do and why they're important? When fire comes through, it scorches, may not kill the branch, but it scorches it enough to stimulate the tree to just let that branch die. So you see no lower branches. But if fire is kept away from these trees, they, they may retain some of their lower branches, but for the most part, they drop them in, a, in an area that gets periodically burned. So these low intensity fires allow the pine cones to drop their seed and grow more longleaf pines. In the Holly Shelter game land, where Andy Wood and I are on this April day, he's pointing out some longleafs that are in the grass stage. If you didn't know, you might think these were just a tuft of long, bright green grass. But if you look down into the middle of the plant, you'll see a little tuft of uh, what's called the apical meristem, the growing tip of the tree. And if we find a slightly older one, we'll get a better look at that growing tip. And this plant is one year older than the one we just looked at over there. This plant is about five years old. How do you know that? Because it's in the grass stage, and that's a rough estimate. It's in the grass stage for typically five to seven years. And then in that time, it's drilling a taproot down into the ground. This is very sandy soil. It's pure sand. This is all a former sand dune habitat. So if we were here, thousands of years ago, these would be rolling sand dunes, much like what you see in the sand hills in closer to the Piedmont, Fayetteville area. So these are weathered and now low. So it's not much of a topography here, but it is sandy soil. So well-drained, and that means these trees have to drill a taproot like a carrot to get to moisture. So for five years, roughly, it's in that stage, and then 
With all of those needles around the growing tip of the plant, they act as a buffer against fire. So when fire comes through here, it'll be fairly quick. This whole area will burn in a matter of in a couple of hours. If everything goes well, if all the planning is correct, they'll have this done before lunch. So the fire comes through here as contradictory as this sounds, we would call it a cool fire because it sweeps through the wiregrass very quickly, doesn't build up a lot of heat, burns away inkberry, it'll toast all of these azaleas, but they'll spring back next year, and it'll burn off the needles around the longleaf pine. But not the tip. And since fire actually promotes the growth of native grasses and wildflowers as well, what the Wildlife Resources Commission calls a grassy understory, the longleaf pine savanna then becomes important habitat for other species, such as Bachman sparrow and bobwhite quail. After the fire stimulates all this growth, managing the forest might involve thinning out some of the newer trees, so longleafs aren't trying to outcompete each other for nutrients. Just a moment ago, Andy told us that longleaf pines will spend five to seven years in the grass stage, very slow-growing trees. The reason it takes so long is longleaf pine is a very dense wood. And if you look at this tree stump that's been cut, you can see how close the rings are. This is almost rock hard. It's as hard as oak. By the time they're suitable nesting habitat for the red cockaded woodpecker, they're pretty old trees. So the male woodpecker finds a habitat here and determines that, okay, there's no other birds like me in this immediate area. It needs a territory of, depending on the quality of the trees, 80 to 200 acres or so for a territory. They're a non-migratory bird. This is their territory. We are standing in somebody's property, the bird's property. You understand this now. The red cockaded woodpecker is endangered because the great longleaf pine savannas are disappearing. There are just fewer places with that many connected acres. What's left? In New Hanover County, Carolina Beach State Park, Longleaf Park, Halliburton, and the campus of the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Of course, in Pender County, which is seeing its own explosive growth, Holly Shelter, not including adjacent game lands, boasts 63,520 acres. But back to our red cockaded woodpecker. He's hoping to start a family. So he's looking for a longleaf pine habitat that could be home. The woodpecker will identify a tree that it thinks will make a good cavity and begin by landing on the tree and flaking off the very outer bark on the tree. And in the process, you see underneath the gray weathered bark, it's bright red or brick red. So the woodpecker will flake away much of this outer bark smoothing the tree, and, and I'm talking about paper-thin pieces of bark. It's not going in and excavating all the bark off um, like, a, you know, like a, a lathe. It's taking off the outer easy stuff, stuff that you could flake off with a, a fingernail. And the next step is to drill a hole through the bark called a sap well, and it's about an inch, two inches in diameter, 
and it's just a, a hole through the bark that starts to weep sap. The Tar Heel term is a reference to the sap that was derived from longleaf pine. What do they sound like? They have the sweetest little chattering call and they communicate with each other all day long. It's not a song like you would hear from a typical songbird. It's, it's a, and it's not lilting, it's a high pitch chattering. To me, it, it sounds like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm over here, what are you doing? Uh, well, I'm over here, what are you doing? Well, I'm still over here. Well, did you find anything? Not yet. So they're just bantering back and forth. And, and that banter probably reinforces the pair bond and the family unit because they do live as a family unit. They're what we call communal breeders. Unlike most birds, they provide extensive parental care for a long period of time for their offspring. The male scrapes off that thin outer bark, drills the sap wells, which you can see are, are weeping on there. So he's addressed those recently because trees are now uh, sending sap up, up to the top because we're in spring. So the trees are weeping and that sap coats the outer part of the tree like a candle, almost like candle wax. It's why they have to nest in living longleaf pine, says Andy, because the dead ones don't weep sap. That smoothness and presence of sap on the tree, we assume it helps deter predators like snakes, raccoons, things like that. So it makes it hard to climb up. If you went and hugged that tree, you would never get the sap off of your clothing. And any sap that's on your hand, that little bit of black right there. Andy's pointing to what looks like dirt on his own hand. That's from last week. I mean, it doesn't come <laughs> off. You can scrub and scrub, and it doesn't come off. So um, it's, a, it's a great strategy, but it's labor-intensive. He begins by excavating upward into the tree so that when it rains, rain won't come down the side of the tree and flow into the cavity that it will create after going upward into the tree to the heartwood, it then excavates downward to create the nest cavity itself, which looks like a, like a stocking filled with seeds. It, it's a, I don't know how to describe it, looks like a gourd, um, a hollow gourd. The male may have already attracted a mate, a female, and so he may be excavating the cavity for himself, or he may be working on two, one for himself and one for his mate. The whole process takes months to years. That's just for one pair of birds. And then he goes and starts working on other cavities because each cavity is a bedroom for each bird. They don't usually roost together at night, says Andy. They can, but... They seem to prefer separate sleeping quarters. Typically, the female has her cavity, he has his cavity, and then there'll be two or three more cavities, or more than that, to house their offspring. In the same tree? No, in different trees. In different trees. Yeah, so when you look around, you see there's another white-painted tree over, oh, 200 feet away, and then there's two more, a couple few hundred feet away, and there's another one on the other side of this savanna. So right where we are standing, there's one, two, three, four, five cavity trees that, yeah, there's six. So this is kind of the hub 
of this bird's territory, which again may encompass 100, and, 100 plus acres. They are territorial birds. So, so like the beavers, they don't play well with other families. Not at all. And they don't play well with other cavity nesting birds like the bluebird. As our son Carson describes it, the, the red-cockaded woodpecker is a fiefdom. You've got a king and a queen, and then princes and princesses. Hmm. Are they having conversations too about royal relevance? North Carolina's Wildlife Resources Commission conducts periodic surveys of holly shelters longleaf pines to find new cavities created by red cockaded woodpeckers. Andy says they want to document every tree that houses one of these birds. When they do these surveys, they come into suitable habitat, spread themselves out in a line, and I've joined them multiple times. We spread out about 100 feet apart and we walk through these savannas looking at every tree. So every tree, and there are thousands of trees in our eyesight right here, every tree in here has had our eyes on it, looking for new cavities, just to see what's going on. It's a measure of what's happening with these birds. The woodpeckers will sometimes nest in pond pine and loblolly pine, and Andy says there are rare examples of the birds nesting in a pond cypress, but longleaf pine is what they favor. As if we need a reminder, we're standing in the middle of a wild ecosystem. I'm asking Andy about what we lose if the longleaf pines and the red cockaded woodpeckers go extinct. But nature has other plans for this interview at the moment. We are witnessing a territory argument. Oh, there's the woodpecker. Did you see it just land on the tree? There's an, that's a bluebird. Bluebirds are the enemy of red cockaded woodpeckers because they'll try to take over a, a woodpecker's cavity and use it for their own. So the woodpecker just landed on this tree. It's on the backside because it knows we're here. That's the funny thing about birding. Um, people, even I've lowered my voice, which is silly. There it is. You see him? Solid white head. You see the bluebird chasing it off? Yeah. Being a nuisance? Everybody loves the bluebird. It is the most vicious animal in the in the bird kingdom. Uh, there we go, another one. The Wildlife Resources Commission agrees the open park-like nature of red cockaded woodpecker habitat also attracts eastern bluebirds, red-headed woodpeckers, different bird from the red cockaded deer, and southeastern fox squirrels. Those two RCWs are paired. They're together and they're trying to shoo away the bluebird that is thinking about taking over that cavity. So back to the million dollar question. What happens if we lose the red cockaded woodpecker? If it went extinct, what do we lose beyond just fodder for bird watchers? Of course we can't fully quantify the effects. Unintended consequences, unforeseeable outcomes makes the question unanswerable. But there are elements to the answer that are new discoveries for scientists. The woodpecker, we think, helps introduce red heart disease to new trees, which benefits itself. Red heart disease is a fungal infection that softens the extraordinarily hard, dense wood of the longleaf pine. Wood that is so dense, Andy says a nail will bend before going into the wood if you don't drill a hole first. And while Andy also says the degree of softness is mostly undetectable to him, the birds know. Trees with red heart disease make cavity creation 
and the growth of the RCW fiefdom a little bit easier. These cavities are beneficial to a, a great number of other animals. Sometimes the cavities get abandoned and they get used by other species of birds. Great crested flycatcher, bluebird, brown-headed nuthatch, chickadees. So they're creating homes for other animals. Yet another way, you can't remove one species from the ecosystem without affecting the whole. Remember Andy's International Space Station analogy from episode one? The way to think of species, in my mind, the way I think of species, is as rivets holding together the life support system that's keeping us intact here on Earth. So imagine the International Space Station and the, the astronauts that are up there. Every day, they are looking at individual rivets and nuts and bolts that are holding together the space station and they understand and appreciate the value of each and every one of those rivets. And if one of them said, hey, you know, we don't need this one here. Really? You, you're willing to lose that rivet in this space station. And when you look at a plant or animal on Earth, it is a rivet holding together the life support system. You can call it an ecosystem if you want. But the fact of the matter is, if we lose all of the plants, if we scraped Earth clean, down to just dirt and water, humans would be extinct. We think we're invincible and we're not. We are wholly dependent on the, the pyramid of life, if you will, that is formed of plants and wildlife. And another woodpecker just came in. So I tell you, we're gonna step away and let them They're trying to get back turf. to their yeah. Oh, they don't care that we're here. Oh, they don't? No, not really. I've stood under trees and had the woodpeckers flaking bark on my head. <laughs> they know we're here, says Andy, and he laughs at himself. He, like any responsible environmentalist, doesn't want to disturb the wildlife. But the reality is the birds are absolutely aware of us. Chickadees have different vocalizations to describe different animals in the environment. So for example, if there were chickadees around, they might be calling with notes that tell other chickadees, oh, there's humans in the field, or there's a snake on the ground, or there's a hawk. And we know that they are distinguishing different species. But what's really cool is other species of birds are picking up on what the chickadees are saying. So when the chickadee says snake, the birds in the area, they don't look up into the tree, they look down on the ground. When they say cat, they look all around to find that cat. It, it's just amazing. The, the communication that goes on around us, we think we're something with the interweb. Uh -uh, we got nothing on plants and wildlife. Even plants communicate with each other. We need them to survive. Each species that goes extinct, according to Andy Wood and many other scientists, each one brings the human species one step closer to that same outcome. We do need to start giving serious thought to not just human rights, but nature rights. With all due respect to nature, we need to do that for our own sake. When I talk environmentalism, I'm talking about humanism. 
Thanks to our guide, Andy Wood of Coastal Plain Conservation Group. And thank you for joining us in the wild coastal plain of SENC, southeastern North Carolina. Find more at whqr.org under Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn.